At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. Man, you can be seated, except for the kids. Man, thanks for worshiping with us, kids. You can head to your kids' program. I love when your little voices join with ours. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Uh, all the way up front here, yep, out that door, or out the back door, whichever door you want, just go that way. Uh, and I want to say a big thank you to our kids' ministry team for all that you do so faithfully. Uh, it's great to know, yeah, absolutely. It's great to know that our, our kids are learning how much God loves them and what God's done for them, that God keeps working in their hearts. As, as we say, God does a work in them to change the world around them. Uh, they're learning that as we learn that each and every week when we gather together. So parents, thanks for bringing your kids here. Uh, thanks, team, for, for serving with them and helping the parents. And as they are the spiritual heroes in the kids' lives, um, we want to lift up the parents and come alongside and help them. Uh, enforce what they're learning at home. And I want to say thank you to the incredible church we have here for serving yesterday. A number of you have some sore uh, back muscles from bending over, taking that food, putting it in the boxes and moving it along, placing them into the cars that came by. Uh, thank you so much for being a church of compassion. May we never stop serving the people where God has called us. May we always be a people that are known first for our love for Jesus, second for, secondly for our love for people, a love for one another. Um, that's what Jesus said. He said, do good works in the world. Go out there and do so they, people can glorify your Father who's in heaven. So we want to be faithful to do that as a church. So thank you. And two, thank you for your faithful giving because that enables us to purchase a food truck, a truck full of food that we can share with the, um, with the congregation. So your faithful giving enables ministry like that. Uh, of course, we have our giving boxes at the two entrances uh, to place your gift or give online is fine. Um, just the regular giving of God's people as he prospers them uh, is what funds the ministry of the church. So thank you. We get to start a new series today. I've been really looking forward to this um, because hopefully this will stop you from fighting with me so much. Um, not, not really. I don't sense that at all. But in our culture, we do see a lot of that, don't we? It seems to be a conflicted culture, a culture that's just ready to go after one another. But we've been called to pursue peace, to live out the peace that God has given to us. Uh, so in our conflicted culture, how do we pursue peace as people of God? Uh, and Jesus spoke of that. In fact, there's an entire chapter uh, that Matthew wrote 
uh, as he records the life of Jesus. And Matthew 18, we're going to spend the next five weeks in to help us understand how can we be people of peace in a conflicted culture. In August of 1963, how many were old enough to at least watch TV that, during that time? Can I see your hand? August of 1963. All right. Well, some of you really missed it. There was a young man, an up-and-coming boxer who hit the scene with a spoken word album. We didn't really call it that at the time, but that's what we call it now. In fact, some look back at this being kind of the start of rap music or hip-hop. The album was called I Am The Greatest. The album was named after the first track on the album. The first track was called I Am The Greatest. Here's how it starts. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of a muscular punch that's incredibly speedy. The fistic world was dull and weary. With a champ like Liston, things had to be dreary. Then someone with color, someone with dash, brought fight fans running with cash. This brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. This kid's got a left. This kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you're asleep for the night. As you lie on the floor while the ref counts 10, you pray that you won't have to ever fight me again. For I am the man this poem is about, the next champ of the world. There isn't a doubt. And six months later, Cassius Clay, better known as Muhammad Ali, backed up his talk by defeating the defending champ Sonny Liston for the heavyweight boxing championship of the world. Dance like a butterfly. There's the man. I told you words from his first track. His second track, do you know what it was called? I am the double greatest. <laughs> it, just, it just gets better. Now, some could argue that, well, that's his, you know, that was all about entertainment and promotional purposes, just a persona he wore, <laughs> might argue against that, but probably none of us would argue that at the core of most people is the thought, I'd never say it, but I'm better than some, right? We wouldn't say that I'm the greatest and we make poems about ourselves necessarily, but we like it when we can kind of get in that place where we get some kind of attention. That was certainly the scene going on in Matthew 18. If you haven't turned in your Bibles yet, that would be a good thing to do or open your devices uh, to that. Again, our, the version has an events tag. You could open that and find our, our campus there and, and follow along through the Word and the outline there if you'd like or on the bulletin. But in Matthew 18, the disciples came to Jesus with a question, a question that kind of betrayed their angling and posturing and uh, conniving to get 
a hint at who Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who gets the best seat in the house? Jesus, when it all comes true, who gets front row? Is it, is it me? It seems they had forgotten their humble beginnings. You know, when Jesus called them, they were fishermen or tax collector or from a local village. Not one of them had any societal prominence. They're all just unknown, common folk, not highly educated, certainly wouldn't be on the who's who of upcoming religious leaders, but Jesus chose them to follow him, and he would make them fishers of men. And they were able to see up front, front row, the incredible feats of the Messiah. They were able to hear his teaching, and they seemed to understand his teaching before many of the people around that were hearing also, maybe even some of the religious leaders. They began to sense that I've got a step ahead of them, it seems. Not only that, Jesus then told them, the things that I'm doing, you can do also. In fact, in fact I'm going to have you prepare yourselves to go. Go two by two and go, go out and do exactly what I've said. Tell people what I've been telling them and do the things that I, I've been doing. I'm giving you the power to cast out demons. I'm giving you the power to heal the sick. And they did. So they came back to Jesus with this question as they've been watching this transformation take place. Jesus, who's the greatest? Because we're realizing that although we may have thought at one time we were nobodies, we're actually figuring out that we're really somebodies. And folks, you are too. Do you know that? You are too. In fact, Peter, who is in this scene here, would write later on. He says, let me tell every believer in Jesus who's reading this, let me tell you who you are. You are a chosen people. You are priests, royal priests. He says, you are God's very own possession. You are a holy nation. And you can show others the goodness of God because he called you out of darkness into his glorious light. That's who you are. If you've, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are a somebody because you've been called and chosen and empowered. You're gifted. You have a purpose. You have a mission you're part of his body, the body of Jesus here on, on earth. But here's what's different. In our culture, and in fact, just about every human culture that, that has been, in whatever ethnic group, whatever place on the globe, in most cultures, when you are placed into a position of prominence, or when you're given it an advantage, what's common then is to use it over others. That you see yourself with an advantage over some other people and you use that power to do things that maybe help yourself, but it, it harms people. Because when we pursue definitions of greatness that are different 
than Christ's, we hurt each other. When you are given an advantage, if you're not understanding what Jesus describes as an advantage, you will use that to hurt other people. And that's tragically what happens, and it happens today. It happened this week. It happened in your home, and it happened in mine. That our sense of position or importance has hurt our spouse or kids or parents. It's hurt our neighbors or people at the grocery store. It's, it's hurt people at work. That's just what we do in our human culture. But that's why Jesus came and began to preach to the, to the world, wherever he went, that the kingdom of heaven is here. So how the disciples say, okay, so the kingdom of heaven is different. Who's greatest in that kingdom? And Jesus takes the time in this chapter to clarify what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. So let's dive in. Matthew chapter 18, in verse 1, we see first of all, we see that greatness in the community of Christ shows itself by pursuing dependence instead of power. In most kingdoms, if you have any sense of greatness or position or advantage, that gives you power. Jesus says, actually in the kingdom of heaven, greatness is reflected by your increased dependence, not your power. Here's what it says. At that time, verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It begins with that phrase, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. So, at that time. In other words, this, the context is important here. So, what had just happened? Well, three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, had been given an incredible privilege. Jesus took the three of them, separated them from the disciples, went up to a hill, up to a mountain, and he was transfigured in front of them. It's a, it's a word that simply means he expressed the glory of God. He shone like a bright light. There was some aura about him that knocked them to their knees. They had never seen anything like this before. While being transfigured, there was two other people that just showed up. And they recognized them as ancient people, people that died generations before, Moses and Elijah. How they recognized them, I don't know. But something, they had that spiritual sense that that's who this was, joining with Jesus. They, they, they began to see that Jesus is in a category far beyond any other human they've ever met. Peter, James, and John then followed Jesus back down the mountain, with it, probably with their jaws hanging open. And they came to the rest of the disciples. 
And people that were with the disciples came to Jesus and said, these guys, they're hopeless. They're helpless. They don't help us at all. My son, he's demon-possessed. He keeps throwing himself in a fire, and they can't cast the demon out. So Jesus casts the demon out. So those nine disciples are left wondering, who are we? Not sure we're that, that helpful. And then, Peter, Jesus asked the disciples a question. You're seeing a bunch of stuff happen. You're hearing me talk. Who do you think I am? And the guys give some different answers. And finally, Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, that's it. Upon that truth, I'm going to build my church. I mean, Peter and James and John were getting it right. So no wonder the disciples came to Jesus and said, you keep pulling these three away. You keep doing these certain things with them. Who's greatest? It doesn't say who asked the question, does it? Maybe it was Peter, James, and John. Or maybe it's the other ones. Saying, do I have a place? Really, is it them? Because Peter's really annoying. And James and John... I mean, they're, I like their dad, but those guys? So, Jesus responds to them in a really interesting way. He says, I'm telling you. That's what he says. When it says truly or verily in some of your versions, he says, I want you to listen to this, guys. Unless you change, unless you become like this child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Here you're consumed with the question, who's the greatest? You better check and see if you're even in before you ask the question, who's greatest? And then he helps them know who's in. His point was incredibly simple. He says, unless you become like this child, in other words, unless you recognize your own inability to even get into the kingdom, Unless you recognize that without someone greater's help, you're helpless. Unless you recognize that without someone's resources, you're empty. Unless you recognize that unless someone protects you, you're vulnerable. Unless someone directs you, you're lost. Unless you have the idea of a child that is completely dependent on a parent, you're not even in the kingdom of heaven. So start there. He says, the kingdom of heaven, greatness begins when we recognize our utter dependence and not when we start accumulating power, position, and advantage. Greatness begins by recognizing that it's God's power, not our own. It's his intellect, not our own. It's not our correct doctrine. It's not our strategic planning. It's not our improved behavior. It's not, I don't cuss anymore. It's not, I don't steal anymore. That's not what makes greatness in the kingdom of God. It's recognizing that without God, I am nothing. That I have in and of myself Nothing to offer. And, and, and sometimes we have the tension to say, well, wait, wait a second. We know that a passive life is also destructive. 
right? Someone that just sits back and um, kind of with shoulders slumped and I don't have anything, any way to help, so I'll just kind of sit here and wait till things come to me. We know that's destructive. You can't lead your home well with a, with a passive and uninvolved spirit. You got to have strength. You got to have intelligence. You got to have energy into that. But here's the thing. In the beginning, God made it clear. When he created humans in his image, he put them in the garden and said, now I want you to be in my image. Represent me. I want you to partner with me. This is my world and I want you to partner with me. I'll provide everything that you need so that you can care for the world. It has always been a partnership that God's called us to. He created us with intelligence. He created us with skill and with ability. But it's all intended to be done in partnership with God. And the tempter came into that beautiful perfection and that partnership and said, really, did God say? He said, don't you know that if you, if you pull away from him, then you can know right from wrong by yourself. Don't you know that if you rebel against this one tiny little law, then you will be like God? In other words, you'll be able to reign without his authority? So enemy has always been coming to creep into our world to help us put our attention on our possessions and trust in them instead of the God who is our provider. Spiritual maturity is evidenced, spiritual growth is evidenced by your increasing understanding of how dependent you are on God. Jesus illustrated it with the idea of of a branch, right, and a vine. He said the branch doesn't have any ability in and of itself unless it's connected to the vine. How many have been to an orchard so far this fall? Can I see your hand, an apple orchard? Handful of you? Nobody's made me an apple pie, Jordan. Yep, come on, buddy. What are you doing with those apples? Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Yep, yep. Well, I'll give you time. <laughs> None of us went, that went went to the orchard and said, what I'm going to do, I'm going to look for a branch. So that I can break that sucker off and I'm going to take that home and then I can keep producing that fruit and have apples all year long, right? It doesn't make any sense. You know that if you picked up a branch from an apple tree and took it home, the only thing that's good for is starter for your camp bonfire or chip it up and put it in your smoker. That's all that's good for is to burn. It can't produce fruit. And Jesus says the same thing. You're like that branch. That unless you're abiding in the vine, the branch can take no pride and say, all the energy is flowing through me to produce this beautiful apple. Nope. All the energy comes from the vine, from the roots, up and it's just a conduit. Any bragging rights from the branch is all based on the vine. And Jesus says that is so essential to the kingdom of heaven. To living out the kingdom of heaven. To being in relationship. If you fail to remember that you are utterly dependent on God, you will embrace a definition of greatness that will hurt people. 
Solomon nailed it when he said in Proverbs 13.10, only by pride comes contention. But the wise will listen to advice. If you begin to think that you're all that, relationships are going to suffer. In fact, many times, as you look back to when conflict turned ugly, when words got harsh, it's because somebody offended your pride. And this is what Jesus said, or Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2. He said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking at your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships, he says, have the same attitude that Jesus had. Right? He was the very essence God, but he emptied himself of that took on the form of a servant and offered himself as a sacrifice to the point of death. That's the definition of greatness. That's what Jesus says to them. He said, it's not, greatness isn't who's got the advantage. Greatness is realizing that apart from God, I have nothing. It's not, it's not pursuing power. It's, it's growing consistently in your sense of dependence on God. Secondly, greatness in the kingdom of heaven practices loving care instead of introducing te temptation. Verse 5 continues, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's as if Jesus says, oh, well, I got this kid up here. There's one more thing I want you to think about. When you think about greatness in the kingdom of heaven, I want you to think about this. Unless you receive one of these little ones, you know, the ones that can't offer us anything, the ones that don't value, we don't bring value to the crowd, right? They're kind of in the way. Unless you welcome them, unless you receive them, you won't be receiving me. In other words, greatness is caring for the weak ones. The little ones here could mean everyone who is in the kingdom of heaven, because that's what the previous verses say, right? Unless you're like a child, you're not part of the kingdom of heaven. And if you offend one of these little ones, this is anybody that's in the kingdom of heaven, and that could very well be. Or he could be saying, and the ones that like this child offer little value to you. The ones who society maybe marginalizes because of their lack of strength or their lack of ability to put their shoulder to the task. The ones that are most often overlooked or marginalized. Maybe due to their lack of wealth or their maybe lack of education or giftedness or maturity, those that some would say, yeah, that doesn't help our team get better. Jesus says, unless you welcome them, you're rejecting me. And again, 
got to doubt whether you're really in the kingdom of heaven. Receiving them seems to imply a valuing of them. If you value them, you value me. The human tendency is to value important people, those that can add value to us. Those are the ones we value, right? Those are the ones we invite over for dinner. Those are the ones that we want to come alongside of, the ones that can help us connect with other people and such things. But Jesus says, but yeah, but that's not the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean we don't value the people that are important, right? I mean, just watch Jesus' life. He ate with the, with the Pharisees. He ate at their home, but he also ate with the tax collectors. He went to the synagogue ruler's home and, and healed his daughter, but he also went to the gate of the temple and healed the blind beggar. That Jesus says the problem with the kingdom on earth is that you value people based on what they can give you. The kingdom of heaven says we don't, any of us, have anything really to give. We're utterly dependent on the king. When we compare our greatness to the king's, we're all way down here. And Jesus says if you value those the culture says are less valuable, you are valuing me. We're going to talk more next week about this next part because it introduces a concept that continues through from verse 7 onward. But he makes this kind of startling statement. There was somebody I worked with once, a good friend of mine, who he said, you know, Dan, sometimes I just want you to get upset. You seem so calm, and you seem like good things happen, and you just, you just handle things calmly, and you, you, know, you just maneuver through things, and I, I admire that, but sometimes I just want to see you throw a chair through a window. <laughs> really? Uh, I'm not seeing how that would benefit anybody. Maybe you think of Jesus. And you think of Jesus as that one that nobody can throw him, nobody makes him upset. Mm. Look at this phrase. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, I'm going to throw you out the window. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You see the... You see the injustice of that scene come into Jesus' mind and say, you just need to tie an anchor around your neck and throw you in the North Channel. You mess with one of these little ones. These are the ones that are valuable to me. And if you don't receive them, you're rejecting me. But even worse, if you cause one of them to sin, instead of valuing them and causing them to thrive... Humanly speaking, you should be just thrown into the sea. True greatness involves being aware of the tragic consequences on others when we stumble and fall. In our independent culture that we live in presently where we think the only thing I do or the, the things that I do only affect me. Jesus pushes against that and says, actually, 
everything we do affects more than just me. We live in community. As a believer in Christ, you're part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians teaches us. You're part of the body of Christ. There's all kinds of members. I don't want there to be divisions in the body because you're all part of one body. If one body suffers, it all suffers. If one body is blessed, they're all blessed. And Jesus teaches us that your life affects other people. We don't live on an island, so be so careful. And it's probably good for me to mention, even to this crowd right here, to remind you that some of you, because of the work that we're seeing God do around here, and we're seeing people come to Christ, and we're seeing people grow, their faith is very tender. It's like that seed that's been planted and barely bursting forth a sprout out of the soil. People in your life that God has allowed you to influence. Folks, be so careful because your life and the decisions you make can be very harmful to that tender faith. The importance of you following in the ways of Jesus and putting aside those passions that maybe you used to live according to it. And maybe those things that you say, it's no big deal. No, when you're influencing people new to the faith, it's a big deal. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, he said, don't be a stumbling block to anyone. For those that are weak in the faith, they're watching you. And sometimes you have to not do what you really could do because it might discourage the faith of another weaker person. We're part of the body. And Jesus says we need to recognize greatness involves putting aside our own pleasures if our indulgence has a negative effect on other people. It seems like in our day, however, people are much more willing to write a scathing comment on a Facebook post because, well, they just needed to hear it. Forgetting the influence that we have on one another. That we can write an insensitive email to somebody as if the only thing that matters is that they hear the truth. Whereas Jesus said, actually, watch how I came. I came with grace and truth. Watch how I minister to the world. I, you'll see me. Yeah, I don't compromise on truth but I speak the truth in love so that they not only hear the truth of God, they hear the love of God. Can I admit a stupid thing I did a few years back? It was a previous ministry leading the church there in Warren. And on the edge of our property, we had this extra lot that somehow um, the church became owners of and it was it was just kind of weird and how the property line was the other side of the parking lot but um it was it was caught between two backyards of these homes and um anyway our our lawn crew you know just often forgot to take care of it and then it'd get overgrown and then it'd be a 
you know, a nuisance and then a headache to have to clear up our spring cleanups. We always did that. Our fall cleanups, we always had to go clean up that yard again just because we didn't know the purpose for it. So at one time, I met with them. I said, you know, we just need, let's, it's just a, a bother. Let's just chop it all down, soak it with Roundup, and then we won't have to worry about it for a while. All right? Makes great sense. Well, about four or five days later, we get a knock at the church office from one of those neighbors. And he says, I've been having an organic garden right next to that lot for the past several years, and I take very good care of it. And when you soak that place with Roundup, it's soaked off into my property. And I don't know how long it's going to be before I can honestly have an organic garden again. Well, I had lots of things that came to my mind. And I don't know if that really works like that. But here's what I do know. I didn't even think about anybody else. I was only thinking about us. I didn't think about my neighbors. I just thought that this is my thing. I'm going to deal with that. How's that going to affect anybody else? And I wonder if that's how too often we live our lives. I wonder if that's how we live our lives in our homes. Is that for some reason we've got this idea that who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the Stuarts or the kingdom of Algonac or whatever. Who's greatest? Well, I don't know who's the greatest, but I'm one of them. And so everything that I do only affects me. But the reality is, as Jesus says, if we live our lives in a way that we carelessly offend other people and those that are weaker in the faith, then we have a lot of accountability to face. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven, first of all, begins with recognizing we are utterly dependent on the king. And we have no standing in and of ourselves on which to take pride in. That we are completely empty without him. And any strength and any wisdom and any insight I have, I humbly use it to serve not my own ambitions, but the ambitions of others because I'm not an island. Maybe this, is be a, this, we could say, is the spirit of humility. When we begin to talk about conflict and resolving it and living at peace, if we don't start with the concept of humility, we'll never get to peace. Unless we begin the conversation recognizing that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, we'll never be able to experience God's graciously providing us that peacemaking ability because he'll keep opposing us because he, there's only room in this universe for one person to be proud. And that's not me and that's not you. It's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the only one that cannot be matched. 
He is the only one that doesn't need anyone else. He's the only one that needs, doesn't need our wisdom, doesn't need our insight. He never gets better. He never makes mistakes. He is the one that can truly say, I am self-sufficient. Everyone else needs to begin relating with one another with the sense that I'm desperately in need for God so that his goodness can flow through me. Let's start with that right now. In this moment, Father, we say to you how much we need you. We confess our tendency to think a lot about ourselves. We confess our tendency to value things that we see most clearly. We seem to make a whole lot of priority with celebrating things that we've learned and we've developed, failing to realize how little we truly know. So, Father, would you grant to us that spirit of Jesus who emptied himself and became a servant even to the point of death. Lord, I know that positions us to be your instrument, to do wonderful things through us, not for our glory, though, but for yours. I thank you for Jesus who's given his life for us. And Lord, I, I pray that each person here would right now ensure that they are in your kingdom by acknowledging to you, Lord, we are sinners. I am a sinner. And I can do nothing for the sin that I've committed. I can't take it away. I can't make up for it. I desperately need your cleansing. And your son has shed his blood so that my sin can be cleansed. I receive that today. Thank you, Lord, for giving me new life. And I pray that your life would shine clearly through me, would empower me to live as you defined as great in the kingdom of heaven. Hear us as we pray. Hear us as we sing in response to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.